sins, and we're thankful. Thank you for the opportunity. Lord, as we look to your word, again, we pray that you open our eyes to it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Many of you remember the story of Todd Beamer, who was aboard Flight 93 that was hijacked on September 11th in 2001. Beamer was a Wheaton College graduate, a Christian college, and upon marrying and beginning his life, he became a Sunday school teacher at his church. When Flight 93 was hijacked, Beamer and others planned to take the plane back, and soon they put a plan into motion to do so. He made a phone call to uh, Air Force supervisor where he spoke with that individual and the FBI listened in on the conversation. The Twin Towers had been hit and of course everybody was on extreme high alert at that time for anything going on in airplanes. And while on the phone with this Air Force supervisor, it was recorded that Beamer recited Psalm 23 as well as the Lord's Prayer. And although those are certainly wonderful things, scriptural Things Those were not his famous last words. Beamer directed his voice not to the phone, but to the others who were in on the plan to take the plane back. And he said, are you ready? Okay, let's roll. Just a few words, but profound when we attempt to understand the, the feelings and the emotions and the thoughts going on on that plane on that morning. Some of you may have experienced the last words of a family member. A mom or a dad or a grandparent, maybe they were their last words to you. And certainly those words would continue to ring in your ears. Maybe a last bit of advice, a last piece of encouragement for you. But final words are incredibly important. They're memorable. There's a sense of weightiness about those kinds of words that that are even more weighty than all the others that they've said. Simply because they are the last words, they're the last thoughts of somebody whom you had loved. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the last public words of Jesus. Certainly, he had more interactions with his disciples, but these were going to be his last public words during this Passion Week. This is going to be the last time that you see Jesus address the crowds. This is the last time you're going to see him address those scribes and Pharisees and all of the rest on this day. And as his final words to these people, there is certainly an added weight to them. There's just an extra oomph, as you saw when we were reading through chapter 3. There's an extra something to these words that Jesus is really searing onto the minds of these individuals listening. You see here that while the Pharisees were all gathered together, Jesus comes up to them and begins asking them questions. In fact, a series of questions, three or four questions, that are really meant to get these Pharisees' mind going. And he begins by asking them, what do you think about the Christ? Now I'm curious as to what your answer may be. What's your initial response to that question? What do you think about the Christ? I know I've told you this before, but I've asked a Jewish rabbi essentially the same question, but of course related it specifically to Jesus. And I said, what do you think about Jesus? And his response that I'll never forget was he was a good guy. Now whether he meant that or not, I don't know, but it was clear enough that he did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He did not believe that Jesus was his Savior. But what do you think about the Christ? Who do you think that the Christ is? 
Let me remind you that Christ is more of a title than a name. Jesus was his first name, but it's not as though Christ was his last name. So, oh, what's your name? My name is Brandon Dyer. Oh, what's your name? Jesus Christ. No, his last name wasn't Christ. His first name was Jesus, of course, but Christ is more of a title. It really means Messiah. It could have been asked this way. What do you think about the anointed one? The anointed one, the Messiah, this one that had long been foretold, the one that the prophets had had all foretold and spoken about. Not many weeks ago, we looked at the response of Peter to basically this same question. Who do you say that I am? And what does Peter blurt out? He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that is a really good answer. That is a, 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 an answer with a great direction. But notice the second question that Jesus asks in verse 40, 42. So first, what do you think about the Christ? And the second question, whose son is he? And maybe the initial response would be, You know, in our minds, well, Mary and Joseph, right? But what Jesus is really asking is who is the Christ's great ancestor? What line did the Christ come through? Ancestry is something that as I get older, I think more and more about. Remember when I was a teenager and my dad was getting into ancestry and figuring out family lines and all that sort of thing. Remember being a teenager and that was a really boring thing to do. But now it's really kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? To to consider your family history, to to consider where your uh, family once lived across seas or wherever it had been. And I remember for us finding out how long our family had been in Rhode Island, and finding out that a couple of my ancestors were governors of the state. It's just kind of interesting to know. You kind of put together this who's who of your family tree. And again, I could have cared less in those days, but now it's really intriguing because it's fun to know who your ancestors are. But the who's who of your family tree is always great to know, and that's really what's going on with this. Whose son is he? Whose great ancestor? Who along his line is, is the Messiah His father. Who is his father? And Jesus' question here concerning the ancestor of the Christ had a very common answer. So again, you think of this area, this time, the way the Jewish people are thinking. They're looking and longing for their Messiah. And one of the clues that they had as to who the Messiah would be was going to be whose father he was. Namely, that he would be a descendant of the great king David. Now, if you're not a Christian or if you haven't been a Christian long, you may be wondering who David is. David was the second king of Israel a thousand years before Jesus came to the earth. And David is unique partly because God entered into a really special relationship with David. He entered into a covenant with David back in 2 Samuel 7, where he promises that David's throne is going to be established forever. And so 2 Samuel 7, along with other passages like Isaiah 11, verse 1, Isaiah 11, verse 10, Jeremiah 23, verse 5, those are all key, among others, to prove that Jesus was going to come from the line of David. Now, all of this is really Christmassy. Two years ago, when we began the book of Matthew, it's been that long since we began our study in this book, we looked at the very first verse. And do you know what the first verse of the book of Matthew is? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so one of the very first things that Matthew seeks to prove in his book here is that Jesus is the son of David. From then on, we have this great record of Jesus' ancestors to show that he is, in fact, David's son. 
You remember the town that, Je- that Jesus was born in. He was born in the town of Bethlehem. Why? Because that was the city of his forefather, David. Throughout the book of Matthew, it appears to be common knowledge to the people at large that Jesus was David's son. He never once denies it, and he always responds to it. You see the blind men on a couple of occasions, the blind men are on the side of the road, and they call out to Jesus, but they don't say, Jesus, Jesus. They say, Son of David, right? They say, Son of David, have mercy upon us. Or when Jesus exercises demons and he heals people in Matthew 12, the people ask among themselves, can this be the Son of David? Or in Matthew 21, where he's riding in on his triumphal entry, and what are the people saying? Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. (coughs) Excuse me. But the Pharisees respond that the Messiah will be the Son of David. And that is the right answer. But the problem for the Pharisees is that their response is not enough. To say that he's the Son of David is not Enough. It is not a complete answer. The Messiah is not just the son of David. And this is what Jesus is really going to begin driving toward. Look at verse 43 again in chapter 22. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his Son, Now stay with me. A really crucial, important passage. Psalm 110 is, one of the, is the most quoted Old Testament passage within the New Testament. And what he's saying is this. King David, as he writes this, he's essentially saying this. King David refers to somebody else as Lord. David, this, this great king, this beloved, powerful, one of the who's who of, of Israel for sure, this one who had killed Goliath and did all of these other things, he refers to somebody else as Lord. Now that's really significant for a king to say, as the Lord, call somebody else Lord. In other words, there's somebody else that is higher than himself. Jesus' point is that David is calling his son the future Messiah, Lord. Implying that whoever this Messiah is, he's not simply a mortal human descendant, but that he is actually much, much more than that. So being David's descendant emphasizes that he is a man, and the Pharisees had that part down. But the fact that David refers to this descendant as Lord implies that the Messiah would be much more than a mere man. Again, is this not what we celebrate this time of year? Where the second person of the Trinity, Christ, comes to this earth. He steps into time, takes on flesh. He's born of a woman. He lives as you and I do as human beings. The difference is this. Excuse me again. I'm (coughs) struggling. The difference is this. That he is 100% man, but he is also 100% God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. We'll get through this, I promise. But this is something that is completely lost on the Pharisees. They could certainly recognize that the Messiah would be the son of David. But they did not recognize that the son of David would also be the son of God. God himself in human flesh. I was just on a Jewish website this week. And they very clearly said that they do not believe Jesus to be the Messiah, to be the son of David. Excuse me. 
They do believe that the Messiah would be the son of David, but they do not believe him to be the son of God, thus refusing Jesus as their Messiah. Yet he is the Lord. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of hosts. He is the one who has sat down on the throne of David and rules and reigns over his kingdom. Even considering that initial question, who is the Christ? The Pharisees respond with their dutiful answer that he is a descendant of the son of David. But again, what about when somebody asks you that question? When somebody asks you, well, well, who is the Christ? Do you respond with some sort of dutiful answer? Oh, well, we believe in the hypostatic union. That Jesus was 100% man and that he was 100% God. Somehow that all works together. And it's just very scholastic for you. Or when somebody asks you, who is the Christ? Do you smile? Do you consider him as your Lord? Do tears fill your eyes? (coughs) Does joy burst from your soul as you consider and proclaim what David proclaims? He is my Lord. Do you thankfully confess that he is your Lord? That he is your treasure? If you are to have saving faith, that is what you must declare. It will not do to know that he is a descendant of David, like the Pharisees clearly knew. But what will do is for you to acknowledge that Jesus is your Lord and to submit to him in all areas of your life as though he is. The Bible is so clear on the Lordship of Christ, not as though he is simply the Lord over everything in a big and lofty sort of way, but that he is the Lord directly over you. Sometimes we can kind of get that, oh yes, God is sovereign, Jesus is Lord, he's sovereign over all things. It's just kind of this big umbrella over all of us, but it doesn't really affect us directly. But that is what his lordship entails, is that yes, his lordship is vast and expansive over all things, but directly over you and me is where his lordship is. So the Bible is very clear. Faith in Christ as Lord is what saves you. Because if you confess in your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. (coughs) Paul is also very clear in Philippians chapter 4 that we stand firm in the Lord. We await our Lord's return, Philippians 3.20. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So whether you do or don't now, you will one day then bow the knee to Jesus as your Lord. And so the question is, have you confessed these truths? Have you confessed that Jesus is your Lord? Is the Lordship of Christ really a a never-departing reality from your life and days? The acknowledgement that Jesus is the Lord over everything has to really imply and be real to you in this, that he is the Lord over you, that his commands are for you to follow as your Lord, so that there's never a day where you're trying to sidestep him as your Lord. That there are certain pockets of your life where you say, oh, these are mine and I can kind of live the way I want over in these certain areas. But that all the pockets and all the categories of your life are directly under the lordship of Christ at all times. (coughs) But like we've noticed so many times before, the Pharisees and others certainly did not accept Jesus to be this Lord. I remind you, that this final part of chapter 22 into chapter 23 
are the last words of Jesus publicly before his crucifixion. Do you mind getting me a tissue? Sorry, guys. I'm really struggling. And it just started happening when the service started. (coughs) That's Satan. But these are the final words of Jesus, as I mentioned, publicly before his crucifixion. And, this, and the, his words to these Pharisees are strong. But at first, he issues a warning to his disciples. Thanks. And his words to these Pharisees, as we read, are quite strong. But at first, he issues a warning to his disciples and to the crowds concerning the Pharisees. He warns the crowds to not adhere to the works of the Pharisees. So don't do what they do, is what he says. He warns of the burdens that they put on other people. Jesus is clear that the Pharisees do what they do in order to be seen by other people. So these Pharisees had what were called phylacteries. Anybody know what a phylactery is? There were these boxes that would be placed on the Pharisees' heads, strapped around the heads, and then they would put another one on their arm. And these phylacteries would contain little pieces of paper of the law that they were to obey. So little pieces of the law hidden inside of them. And why did they do this? They did this to be seen. To be seen as holy. But all of it is a shield, really, for the corruption that is inside of them. But Jesus does say something encouraging. We're in chapter 23. Look at verse 11. He says, But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is where so much of our submission of Christ as Lord is seen, in that fact that we have humbled ourselves. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, none of us are able to escape from this. The humble are the ones to whom the Lord directly looks. Those who are not humble, not living in service to the Lord Jesus Christ, they seek to be the own leader and Lord of their life. Is this not the mantra of the age? That I am the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. We pride ourselves on living outside of the lordship of anybody. Right? That you have no right to tell me how to live or what to think. The Bible has absolutely no bearing on me. Some God in some mystical place called heaven that I can't even see. He's just not even relative to me. There's no relationship. There's no possibility of that. There's nothing there. And in our national, or excuse me, our natural condition, we despise the notion of having somebody rule over us. And friends, if Jesus is to be the Lord of your life, he needs to be fully Lord. He will not be content to be Lord of some, but of all. And so the question is, have you humbled yourself as Jesus requires of us in verse 11? But after he addresses the crowds, after he addresses his disciples in the beginning of that chapter, He turns to the Pharisees, and that's when things get hot. Throughout the chapter, he calls them fools, hypocrites, blind guides, basically saying the blind leading the blind. He calls them sons of hell. This is language, as one author put it, of divine warning. Jesus is not messing around. He's not trifling with these Pharisees. He goes right after them, and he begins to condemn them over and over again. Woe to you, Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Calling them hypocrites over and over again. We've looked at this word before, where it originated in the Greek and became and came to refer to an actor. Because a hypocrite is somebody who is playing the part of somebody that he isn't. 
These religious rulers, they pretended to be religious. All of the things that they did, the phylacteries, the tassels, and all the, the grand look, or when they were fasting, making themselves look gloomy, all of it was meant to make themselves look the part, to look religious. But inside, Jesus gets there and says, it is corroded on the inside. For instance, verse 25, look there with me. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish. But inside, they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, that the outside may be clean also. They were hypocrites. The outside of the cup and the dish, they looked really great. But inside, they were full of extortion and unrighteousness. Or the second famous analogy, that of the whitewashed Tombs. They were beautiful on the outside, clean and white, but on the inside of a tomb are dead men's bones. On the outside they appeared righteous, but inside these people were hypocritical lawbreakers. And I think it's very easy for us when we read through chapter 23 and we read through all the situations where we see the Pharisees to say, bah, the Pharisees. Look how self-righteous they are, right? Look at those Hypocrites, but how desperately we all need to see the hypocrisy in our own lives. How badly do we need, do I need the Lord to expose me of my own hypocrisy and foolishness and blindness as he does the Pharisees? You see, if we're honest, we are not that much different than them, are we? We desire to justify ourselves. We point to our own ability to obey. We point to our great sacrifices. Look how much I have done for Jesus. And so we often trust in ourselves and our own good works. We point to the fact that we read the Bible all the time. And we pray and we do good things as an indication that God should now be pleased with me. God should now accept me based on what I have done. So we feel good. And as though God should esteem us. Because of our own goodness, we may never say that out loud, but we mean it and we feel it in our heart. That God should never deal me a bad hand, because look how much I have done for him. We go to church every time the doors are open. We help old ladies across the parking lot. We point to our decades of service. We're extra charitable, maybe at Christmas time. Wow, God must be really impressed with us. But friends, looking to our works in order to be accepted before God is legalism. Legalism is a word that we throw around all the time, but I don't think we always quite get what legalism is. A legalist is not somebody who seeks to strive and obey the word of God. That's a Christian, right? Somebody who's seeking to obey God's word, that is a, a Christian. But there can be an attitude that creeps in within us behind our obedience, and it turns our obedience from honoring God to honoring ourselves. So Tim, Tim Keller defines legalism this way. Legalism is looking to something besides Jesus Christ in order to be acceptable and clean before God. Legalism is looking to something besides Jesus in order to be acceptable and clean before God. So the Pharisees would say... Well, look how wonderfully I obey the laws of Moses. Look how great I obey the teachings of the ancient rabbis. Look how I am not like all the little people and who don't really have that much to give. 
But what we've noticed is that the Pharisees look to themselves and their own ability in order to be acceptable and clean before God. And that is the spirit that can jump up inside any of us. That God is pleased with me because of what I do. That's why he finds me acceptable. But that's not true. He certainly expects and he requires our obedience. Again, going back to lordship. He expects that our whole lives are lived in submission to him. But the reason that you are acceptable before God, the reason you are clean before God is not because of your own works and your own ability to obey, but because of the work of Jesus for you. So the Christian who has truly experienced God's grace says this, that I am nothing apart from God. The good works that I even do, Ephesians chapter 2, the good deeds that I do are as a result that God had planned them before him. So the work of God through me is a wonderful and beautiful thing. But God accepts those things on the basis that he's the one who has brought them about. He is the one who has done everything. So if I do a good deed, it's not me who gets the pat on the back. It's God who gets the glory. So don't get the idea that, you know, oh, we don't want to be a bunch of legalists. So now we're just kind of all free, free, free. That's not the idea. That the idea is that we are under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And within that, the things that we do are the things that he does through us. Therefore, he gets the glory for all of those things. We don't thank ourselves. And so again, we are acceptable to God by what Christ has done for us, not for what we do for ourselves. But I want to draw a specific application from verse 4 in chapter 23. Look there again, verse 4. They, the Pharisees, tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. So they tie up heavy burdens that are hard to bear, and then they lay them on people. In other words, all of these things, these rituals, these traditions, they lift them up, place them on people, and the people are bearing these burdens. I told you before that the church I attended as a child and a teenager was extremely, what we would say, legalistic. And I, myself, was certainly a legalist. I was taught to be that way. We certainly did not believe that our good works led to our salvation. We would have believed that salvation was by grace alone, through Christ alone, faith alone. But in regard to sanctification, by which we become more and more holy, we thought that if we obeyed a burdensome list of do's and don'ts, not found in the scripture, that God would then be pleased with us. So by our own sheer willpower, if we obey all of these extra rules, God will then be pleased with me. And so we didn't listen to certain kinds of music. We wore our hair a certain way and our clothes a certain way. So-called Christians who listened to a song with a drum in it, they were uh, less Christian. They were more wishy-washy. They were backsliding because of what they listened to or what they wore or what they acted like. But what were we doing? What was I doing? Tying up heavy burdens and placing them on other people. We had this unwritten, man-made list of rules. And essentially, what we thought is if you obey these rules, then God is going to be pleased with you. If you obey these rules, then you are showing that you're becoming more and more of a Christian. And again, we're not talking about 
that there's just no rules. Because again, we're under the Lordship of Christ. And what he says in his word. And all the expectations that are there. Not another set of rules that we have concocted and come up with. And now we put those onto you and say, obey the Bible plus what we tell you to do. So if they could bear, if you could bear a heavy list of rules that we had come up with. And you executed them well. You would not only be pleasing in our sight. But you would be pleasing in God's. And this is what that mentality creates. You have leaders like the Pharisees who push hard for extra biblical rules. We kind of make everybody uniform. It makes it very easy. When you can dictate what everybody dresses and looks like and listens to. It makes it all very easy because you can kind of put everybody in their slot. There's no room for real Christian wisdom in that. But this is what it all creates. When you push for those hard extra biblical rules. You have people who want to put people under a yoke of bondage. And they are filled with rottenness so often on the inside like a whitewashed tomb. So a tomb that looks good on the outside. But on the inside it's rotten. Like every cemetery that you go by. The headstones, large, beautiful, clean. But the inside are filled with rotten caskets. But what's even more heart-wrenching, I think, than those who are self-righteous and very clean on the outside, but there's rottenness on the inside. What I think is even more heartbreaking than that is that you have sheep that belong to Jesus who are desperately trying to keep up with their self-righteous leaders. Where they're keeping up appearances of a good Christian life and being sure that their tomb is is really well kept and really clean on the outside. But on the inside, instead of the rottenness and filth, on the inside it's brokenness. That they desperately want the religious leaders and the church's approval. They desperately hope that God is pleased with them for looking the way they are told and acting how they are told by their pharisaical leaders. But on the inside, they are broken and hurt and withered because they've been so misled. They've been taught to live a guilt-ridden life because they don't match the pristine look of their leaders and they'll never be as good as other people. They've been brought to the point where they look sanctified and lovely on the outside. But for the fear of man, they will never open up and show what's on the inside for fear of being exposed, fearing that others will see their brokenness. And instead of looking upon them with love and care, the church and her leaders look at them with self-righteous judgment for not being able to keep it all together as they have done. And this is tragic. Because we were never meant to look to ourselves and our own goodness. But we were always meant to look to Christ and His goodness. And I think that many of us probably fall into one of these two camps quite regularly. We are either keeping up those outer appearances and our own self-righteousness and we believe that we are impressive to God and other people. And on the inside is nothing but rotting bones. But then on the other side of that, we are in desperate uh, desperation trying to keep up with the outward appearances because on the inside we are utterly broken. And so you have the self-righteous and the self-conscious, both in fear of being truly known, which is why the outward appearances are so important to them. As long as they can deflect what is truly going on on the inside, then they'll be safe. Either way, it's time to confess our own hypocrisy. We may not wear phylacteries on our heads so that everybody thinks we're real spiritual, but maybe we take pride in our Christian appearance. Or maybe we don't wear long tassels from our clothes as the Jews still do, but maybe we think we're a cut above Christian 
for how we dress and present ourselves. Oh, how quick we are to point at these Pharisees, but how desperately do we need our own hypocrisy exposed. I'm happy to stand at a grave with somebody that the body has been in for a year or two years and and talk about that person's life, but don't open the grave. I have no desire to see the corrosion of a body. And so often we are so nice and clean on the outside, keeping up appearances, while on the inside we are as rotten and broken as a casket full of bones. But friends, either way, the church of Jesus should be a place where somebody can come who struggles with self-righteousness, where they can come and say, I am self-righteous, and I know that I struggle with being self-righteous, and that person can open the tomb of their soul and ask God to forgive them of their sin and find restoration. And the church should also be a place where the person who maybe doesn't struggle with the self-righteous side of it, but knows how broken they are, that that person can come and open themselves and find the need for their soul, find that healing for the brokenness. I saw something great earlier today that if you preach to broken people, you will be preaching for a long time, essentially. Because we are all so broken. And we are all so afraid of opening that cavity and letting people see how broken we truly are. But what is the answer? What is the answer for the self-righteous person? What is the answer for the broken person? It's the same. It's the gospel. It's just that beautiful, life-giving gospel. It's the acknowledgement of Christ's person and work on your behalf and your submission to Him as Lord and Savior. It's not your work on your behalf. It's His work on your behalf. Trusting that he will forgive us and that he will heal us. You see, the gospel exposes our hypocrisy. It it exposes the deadness and the brokenness within our souls. So thankfully, if you belong to God, what he does is he takes his word and he opens up that chest cavity and he shows the light of his word on that, which then we can begin to see how we need healing. We begin to see that process by where he can bring the restoration, where he can bring about life, where death and corrosion has been. And you know, if he doesn't do that, then what are we left with? We're left with ourselves in our own strength, constantly trying, constantly feeling guilty, never being enough. But the truth is that Jesus has been enough. And so it's not about depending in yourself, but about depending in Him. And so if He doesn't come in and save us and bring that reconciliation, then we are left to our own self-righteousness, which continues to make us feel fine, and we reflect and set on how nice the outside is instead of how corroded the inside is. Or on the other side, for those who are so broken, we're left in despair if the gospel doesn't shine in us. Because if He doesn't shine that light, into our brokenness, then we won't know where to go or how to seek healing. But when God rips the lid of that whitewashed tomb off of you and he throws open that casket door, that is when we see how rotten and how, if, how horrific we are on the inside and how desperately we need him to renew us and to make us holy. This is again why the Lordship of Christ is so important in all of our lives where every bit of us is under his lordship because he will show us what he needs to fix. He will show us where we are sinful, where we are corroded, where we are broken 
He will show us by his word how to change and the direction that we need to go. And there are just a few questions I want to close with. First, have you submitted to Jesus as your Lord? Have you fully submitted your life to Christ as your Savior and as your Lord? That there's nothing outside of his Lordship in your life. Second, do you depend on his work instead of your own works? <coughs> Is there any way where your works are what you're depending on for your salvation or for your sanctification, that you're being more holy and holy? God is making you that. Are you depending on that or are you depending on his work for you in the gospel? Third, is there any self-righteous attitude or action that you, sorry, Is there any self-righteous attitude or action that you need to confess? And then fourth, if you are broken and weary, come to Christ. It is He who has promised that He will take that load off of you. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at your word and we see how heavy these last public words of yours were to the Pharisees and let us not be quick to point to them as the standard of self-righteousness who we often follow in their shoes and Lord we pray that you'll forgive us of that Lord we also ask those who Realize and see, all of us who should, realize and see our own brokenness and how badly we need you to bring healing and life. Lord, we pray that you'll do this work. In Christ's name, amen.